Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Normally, people don't say much about the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth of John the Baptist, mainly because contemporary Mariology blinds them to the actual content of Luke's Gospel. But even for those who pay close attention, few people notice the discrepancy between the first visit of the Spirit to Jerusalem, pertaining specifically to John the Baptist, himself a reference to the Apostle Paul, and the second visit, pertaining not to the Pauline Church, but the Jerusalemite community represented by Elizabeth. Sometimes a visit is not just a visit. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 41. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 439 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We spoke last week about the contrast between Mary and Zacharias. And we also spoke about the importance of languages. And both of these critical points come to bear now in verse 39 of chapter 1 of Luke. Because as we flow through the story, we have one character being confronted with the words of Elohim and reacting in a disobedient manner. Another character, Mary, reacting in the correct manner despite her lack of trust initially. She makes the correct decision to fully submit to the words of God as delivered by the angel of the Lord. And this name, Gabriel, represents the might of God, but in a very specific way, it's the young champion of God. This one is the manifestation of Elohim's might, his young champion, coming to once again overcome institutionalism in Jerusalem. So now the question is, what's different about Mary? What role does Mary play in overcoming the Jerusalemite community with the Pauline gospel? Now, it's interesting, then, in the language, which you'd never pick up in the English, just like we were talking about these three things last week. We were looking, Richard and I were reviewing Father Paul's commentary on Matthew, and Father Paul points out Luke's unique use of the Aramaic rendering of the name Maria, which is Mariam, and raises the question, what does this say about Mary's function as community relative to Elizabeth's function as community? And what is Mary, as the one who is submitting as a slave to the words of God's young champion, God's mighty representative, Gabriel, 
God's strength. What does this say about Mary? What is she bringing when she comes to greet Elizabeth? There's so much packed in this passage about this movement that happens from Galilee to Judea, from one cousin to another cousin, from this Mary to the house of the priest. So many things are happening all together here. You have to read really carefully the story in order to question the ideas you have in your head. Everyone has their stories in their head about who and what Mary is, and who and what Mary did, and all these sorts of things. And you have to put that aside. You have to come to Luke chapter 1, never having met Mary in church, in your mind, in your dream, whatever. You have to put that to the side, because if you don't, then there's going to be conflict between Luke's Mary and your Mary. The difference is Luke's Mary is canonical, your Mary is not canonical. Making sure that you are ready to dismantle the Mary in your head, which is very difficult for people to do, I understand, but you have to do it. You have to allow Luke to deconstruct your own construction that you built in your head, which is an idol so that what Luke says is the Mary that you understand. If you do it any other way, if you try to make a compromise, it's not going to work. You're going to misunderstand. And just what you said, Father, just the fact that we have an Aramaic name for Mary here, Mariam, makes a difference. And I can tell you, when you are very much in the groove of the language, when you're a native speaker of the language, you notice these slight differences very much. Because immediately a reader of Greek will notice that this is a foreign word. You have to treat it differently in the grammar. That's why sometimes Luke does use Maria, but he also consistently used Mariam. Because it functions differently in the grammar, just like Elizabeth. Elizabeth doesn't function as a Greek word. So they just leave it Elizabeth all the time. You can't change it. You can't decline it correctly. So it's treated as a foreign word. Mariam is also treated as a foreign word, whereas in other books it's treated as Maria, which is a native Greek word. So these are really subtle things, Father. I'm so glad you brought it up because you can't pick it up in the English because even if you said Mariam in 39 and then you said Mary in 41, the English reader would just get confused saying, well, why, why are they using two different names for the same person? But the speaker of Greek, the original hearers of this text, would know you're talking about the same person, that there are two ways of saying the same name, depending on which language you're using. So it's really important to bring that up and to be focusing on what the original language is. It's like what Father Paul says, you know, your sermon should be footnotes on the Greek text or the Hebrew text. So, you know, let's stick with this text using these footnotes so that we understand exactly what's going on instead of, you know, holding on to some conglomeration of texts or things that we heard or songs that we heard or Mary, did you know it's about some Christmas song and we'll just like cram it all together into an idol of Mary in our heads. And of course, Mariam, being an Aramaic name, a Semitic name, connects Mary as a community to the Messianic Pauline community, which is rooted in the fathers of Israel, the tree of the fathers of Israel, but not in the institution of the Jerusalemite community. 
which is interesting because Mary comes from Nazareth. So the young, powerful messenger of God, right? You have this interesting play in the Hebrew. Gabriel is this powerful, young champion. It's very forceful, which implies that, again, there is this showdown ultimately between the Holy Spirit and the temple and the entire infrastructure of the temple as an institution, whatever the Jerusalemite structure is. And now Mary, having fully submitted to the words delivered by God's young, powerful champion, is coming to greet Elizabeth, who, as a woman, represents the community in Jerusalem. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, she just, within the flow of the narrative, there's no discussion of how much time passed. We can't speculate about what happened between verse 38 and 39. You're not allowed to do that. All we know is the flow of the narrative, the context, and the terminology. We know that the author used her Aramaic name. We know that she just fully submitted as a slave to the words of God as transmitted by his young, powerful champion. And now she's coming to Judah as someone from Galilee. It is the movement of the Pauline gospel. Mary here represents the Pauline church, the Pauline community. Remember, in the movement of Luke chapter 1, it's all about disempowering, deconstructing, dismantling the Jerusalemite institution in the minds of the addressees of the gospel. And now Mary, who has been superseded by the words of God's champion, is on the move. And she's coming to Judah and confronting the house of Zacharias. And she's greeting the Jerusalemite community, now occupied by the terrible spirit of the heavenly God. So now we're seeing how God's champion is going to make his move for the sake of the victory of the gospel, the Pauline gospel. There's so much in this verse. We discussed at length already the Aramaic name, and that was also the one who said in verse 38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, also using Mariam. So this name is important as the way that Luke is identifying her with this community. And in your translation, Father, it said, Then Mary rose, but it's in those days, so it gives you kind of a length of time where at some point she came. But one thing I found funny is that in your translation, it said, in a hurry, and in the King James, it says, went into the hill country with haste. But haste, I think, is a really bad translation, especially, but even in a hurry, because when I'm looking through other places where this word is being translated, in Romans 12, 8, he that rules with Spudis, same word. Earnestness, maybe, or diligence, Richard. It's not just speed, focus, diligence. Yeah, so the translation in the King James is diligence. And then in Romans 12, 11, not slothful in business, spudis. And then in 2 Corinthians seven eleven, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness, spudis, it wrought in you. 
And in Second Corinthians seven twelve, that our cares budis for you in the sight of God might appear to you. And in Second Corinthians eight seven, and in all diligence spudis, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. So actually, it seems a lot more about diligence and purposefulness and focus than speed. So the fact that she gets up and she goes, she is on a mission, everybody. She is not, like, this is a thing. This is not merry, meek, and mild. Remember what I said? Don't listen to the hymns that you've heard. Be very, very suspicious of them. Because this is not a Mary who says, let it be according to my word, and then she just let stuff happen. She got up, and she went with a mission, with diligence, with effort, with focus, and went to her cousin. This is not about her just showing up, you know, I haven't seen my cousin for a while, I'm going there anyway, uh, I'm bored, you know, I've, I've tried the staycation route, I want to go to the hill country and check it out, maybe it's a little bit nicer. No, she is going on a mission, and she's going to Elizabeth, and she's going to have a conversation with her, like you said, Father, that's going to involve this Holy Spirit, this power of God that is coming in order to teach this word to convey this difficult, destructive word of judgment that Mary has in her own body. And it's going to come out when she says hello to Elizabeth. But look how the language works, Richard. This is why translations are, as Father Paul always says, deadly. Metas pudis ispolin iuda. Spudis. What's going on with this word? Why would this one word be so difficult to translate? How could this word mean speed or hurry up and at the same time mean diligence? It seems like a contradiction. But the thing is, when someone is earnest or focused or very particular about a specific action, it can mean haste. When Someone at work asks you to do something important. When your boss says, we need this report, we need this slide deck for the meeting, we need this analysis, we need this data pulled with these criteria, you work hard to get it right. And the more important the ask, very often the harder you work, the more focused you are, the more diligent you are, and the faster you work because of the urgency and the importance of what you're doing. The importance creates the urgency. So there can be a link between speed and diligence. But why would you trust a translator to decide what Luke was emphasizing in his use of this term? Why? You have to hear the text in Greek to catch the nuance and then try to infer is Luke talking about diligence as in I got to meet this deadline if this were in the gospel of Mark it would be much easier to talk about haste because Mark is all about speed it's impossible not to catch that in the gospel of Mark but what's going on in Luke or is it about diligence? So someone is making an assumption here. And to test the assumption, to test the translation, you have to look at the original text and you have to hear the whole gospel and keep hearing it 
So I'm going to do my obligatory commercial, and I'm getting no royalties for this. Download Bible.is. Listen to the Gospel of Luke in English and in Greek as you listen to our podcast over and over again. Get used to the Gospel of Luke in translation, but also hear the Greek. Get used to it. And if you can, try to find (laughs) someone who's Greek Orthodox reading it using modern pronunciation. For heaven's sake, that's my personal ask. (laughs) I suffered through philosophy class at the university. I could not stand the pronunciation. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Huh. I thought the Holy Spirit already visited Elizabeth. Why now is Luke saying that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit again? Because Mary, who submitted to the words of Elohim, is now once again bringing something to the community that Elizabeth represents. The question is, what happened from the time that Elizabeth was impregnated with the word? What happened between that moment and now that Elizabeth is lacking? As the one who represents the Jerusalemite community, it's a big question here in the text. I mean, it's beautiful the way this is tied together, and it's just, you know, unless we're reading closely, even I will miss these points. Because back in 15, it said, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And it's like, oh, isn't that nice? The Holy Spirit's going to be in her womb. But then it doesn't say that she was filled with the Holy Spirit until Mary came to visit and greeted her, and Jesus was in her womb. So it wasn't until Mary, who was overshadowed, overpowered by the Holy Spirit, that's what was said to her by the angel Gabriel, and because the Holy Spirit motivated her to become pregnant and to go to Elizabeth with diligence and focus, And this, again, not speed. This is the same diligence and focus that Salome used when she came to ask for the head of John the Baptist. It wasn't speed, it was diligence and focus. Mary came, and Zechariah was promised that the child would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, not Elizabeth, the child. Mary was told that she was going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and that when she came and greeted Elizabeth, that was the moment that the Holy Spirit then caused the child to leap. So it was not the meeting of the two sisters and the beautiful icon where they're hugging each other with their bellies touching. That's not what this is about. This is because the word came to John the Baptist and he immediately responded. He immediately responded to the word. The Holy Spirit came when Jesus was present, and Mary spoke the word of salutation. Now, this is fortunately the beginning of the story. We're going to find that it's not just Jesus kind of moving through the world, and as he comes into your general vicinity, then the Holy Spirit comes with. No, it's the word. It's the promise. But when these two characters, Jesus and John the Baptist, meet next, 
it's going to be a different circumstances, but it's the same thing because John immediately recognizes the one who has authority because of the word that he brings. If you have an idea of what the Holy Spirit is, put it to the side and read how Luke uses Holy Spirit in chapter one, because it's not how you would expect. Number two, when it comes to this meeting of Elizabeth and Mary, don't assume anything. Read what the text says. And when Mary is coming with focus and something that I didn't mention before into a city of Judah, so she goes from the back country of Nazareth and enters into a city in Judah, this is where the word comes. And don't forget, John the Baptist, the next thing we know is he's out in the desert. He's out of the city. And that exactly is where he meets Jesus. I mean, Judah versus Galilee, city versus wilderness. It's all here in chapter one. We've got it all here. And the way that the Holy Spirit is moving the promise to Zechariah about Elizabeth and the child and the Holy Spirit covering over her or directing her, these are all functions that the Holy Spirit is fulfilling in this passage. The way that this functions for Mary, you have the Holy Spirit coming over her, but then you have the power of the Most High, Ipsistos, I'm here looking back at verse 35, is going to overshadow you. And this actually is technically overshadow. It's the same word that's used during the transfiguration when there's a cloud that overshadows them, like it's literally a cloud there. It's not Mary. It's this power that goes with her. This is what John the Baptist is responding to. This power that comes with the word that comes from Jesus from the very beginning, since the announcement of Gabriel, since the announcement of Gabriel, that's the point. Gabriel announces the Holy Spirit comes over Mary, the power of the Most High overshadows her, and she with diligence and focus visits her cousin. And immediately, the other child who will be filled with the Holy Spirit leaps from the Holy Spirit. This is the movement that's happening, but it's the power of the Most High that we're tracking. Not Mary, not Jesus even, not Elizabeth, not John the Baptist. It's the power of the Most High that we're tracking. Look, (laughs) let me cheat a little bit and help you understand what Luke is saying in chapter 1 of the diptych Luke Acts. But the evil spirit responded and said to them, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? I love that line from Acts chapter 19. I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Now, in Semitic languages, you're not presented with a subject and a predicate you are presented with a premise. And in Paul's letters, for example, in Galatians, Paul is the premise. Before you hear about God the Father or Jesus Christ or the Spirit, you hear the name Paul, which means your access to the Spirit is through Paul. He is your mother standing over your crib. Paul is your reference. He is the premise. But in the gospel narrative, Paul is under Christ. And so Mary, who is the mother of the Messiah, 
who represents the Paulian church, is coming to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who represents the Jerusalemite church, but John the Baptist represents the Apostle Paul. So this is about the Pauline gospel overshadowing the Jerusalemite church, but it's also about the Apostle Paul submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he preaches, even though in his letters he comes to his students as the premise. But lest you think that he would set himself above Christ, here you have him presented as the one who is not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus Christ, which is how John the Baptist functions in the gospel prologues. This is nothing to be trifled with. And you would never in a thousand years see these connections if you're not looking at the original text. It's my favorite line in the gospel. (laughs) I love to say this to everybody. And they say, Father Mark, you're quoting an evil spirit. What's the big deal? I don't think that highly of myself in the first place. I know Jesus and I know Paul. But who are you? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.